Last week's Super Bowl is officially in the books. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers were crowned winners. And on the sideline of that team, led by head coach Bruce Arians, history was also made, with three of the most important coordinator positions being held by black coaches, the only team in the league who can make such a claim. But despite that diversity, there's one truth that remains elusive for the NFL. In last week's episode, Karen Given reported on the origins of the Rooney Rule, a rule meant to increase diversity at the head coaching position, which subsequently was extended to front office positions. If you haven't heard that episode, we recommend that you go back and take a listen. On today's episode, we delve into whether or not the rule created 18 years ago works and whether or not its intent is actually having the impact that everyone had hoped for. I'm Andrew Ramsiami, and this is the Global Sport Matters Podcast. We continue our story with reporter Karen Given. It's January of 2007, and excitement is building. Lovey Smith's focus is to take the Chicago Bears to their first Super Bowl since the 1985 season. By doing so, Coach Smith will become the first black head coach ever to reach the big game. Meanwhile, in Indianapolis, Tony Dungy is also trying to make it to the Super Bowl with the Colts. It will be twice as historic if both Indianapolis and Chicago win their championship games. Just four years earlier, Cyrus Mary and Johnny Cochran had threatened to sue the NFL over the lack of diversity in the head coaching ranks. And now, not one, but two Black men had the chance to lead their teams to the big game. And, you know, we've had Black coaches knock on the door of the Super Bowl, get to the championship game, but didn't break through the Super Bowl yet. And so that was a barrier that needed to be broken. That's Cyrus Mary. There was a lot of excitement in the air, but that Sunday of Championship Sunday, and I have to say as a pro football fan, my favorite day of the year is Championship Sunday. Cuts inside the 10, the 5, end zone, touchdown, touchdown Bears. Chicago Bears break through, win the NFC Championship. They're going to the Super Bowl. History is now made. You cannot deny the history of this. It must have run through the first African-American coach. Yes, there are a lot of great coaches that come before me that gave me an opportunity. But hopefully I can do the same from other guys to come. Three hours later, intercepted. Colts are going to the Super Bowl. There's Coach Dungy and the Colts. It was a tremendous high and very emotional. And I know I felt bit of sadness going to that Super Bowl, knowing that Johnny Cochran had passed away two years earlier and how much he would have been thrilled to be part of that. Suddenly, after 40 years of no African-American head coach in the Super Bowl game, you had two African-American head coaches. Jeremy Duru is a professor at American University's Washington College of Law. There was going to be a winner and loser of the game, but in this battle for equal opportunity on the sidelines of the NFL, there was no question that it was a win all around. You know, I wasn't at the NFL at the time, just an avid fan. 
That's Jonathan Bean. He's a lifelong NFL fan. And last August, he was appointed Senior Vice President and Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for the National Football League. I was so proud of both of them. It was just wonderful. You know, and and I think it was a validation of the progress, but also of the immense talent that was in front of us. Not only the players, but the coaching team and family and what they're able to produce with a Black man at the helm. It was really great to see. But in 2011, just four years after that historic Super Bowl and seven years after the Rooney Rule was enacted, Jonathan started hearing people say that the Rooney Rule wasn't needed anymore. I remember the narrative just as a fan where it was like, we've arrived. We've arrived. We've got it. We've got this thing. Here's commentator John Ridley on NPR. Right now, you have eight coaches, more than at any other time. And in addition to that, you've had four black coaches who've gone on to the Super Bowl and two who've won championships. So you look at that in in about seven seasons, that's a pretty successful program. Well, that sounds pretty good. And yet yet you you seem critical of this rule. Well, I'm critical in the sense that after you have a program that is that successful, you wonder, do we still need this Rooney rule? Not only do we still need the Rooney Rule, we need it more than the Rooney Rule. Jeremy Duru again. This uh, large number of head coaches that was being reported was eight, eight out of 32. So we're still at 25 percent and numbers on everything. When you consider the, the player population and the population of assistant coaches in the league, even at 25 percent, the number of head coaches of color in the league was disproportionately low. So we weren't even at a place where you can take your foot off the gas. Well, it reminds me of, you know, Chief Justice John Roberts saying, well, we don't need the Voting Rights Act anymore. And look what's happened, you know, since. That's Shalise Manza-Young. She's a columnist at Yahoo Sports who focuses mainly on race and gender. They did not do away with the Rooney Rule in practice, but it does seem like in theory it is pretty much gone. As a Black woman and with Black children and a Black husband, it affects me more deeply But speaking to former Black executives and Black players and and people who are, you know, living it every day, they just, they don't have answers. To try to find those answers, we've got to talk about something called the coaching carousel. There's only 32 people on the planet who own an NFL team. And a lot of them have very short ropes when it comes to how much time they will give new coaches. At the end of every regular season, a bunch of head coaches and general managers are fired. So beginning in late December, teams start scrambling to fill their open positions. And because of the Rooney Rule, which was expanded to include general managers in 2009, each team must interview at least one candidate of color for every open head coach and GM position. Around 2012, teams started calling Mark Ross. The interviews came quickly over about a five-year span. I would say I had about 12 interviews. Mark was a record-setting wide receiver at Princeton. And when he entered the job market in the mid-90s, he did it the way many of us did back then, with lots of trips to the post office. Resumes and cover letters and put them in envelopes and stamps and send them out. I just knew I wanted to still be involved with sports. I was just sending out everything to anybody and didn't matter what it was. 
Mark found an internship doing public relations for the Giants, and he learned pretty quickly that PR wasn't his passion. He found another internship in Columbia's athletics department, but that wasn't the right fit either. His third internship was in scouting. I said, this is what I wanted to do. Went to grad school after my internship and then got hired full time by the Eagles as a scout. And then my career went from there. Mark rose through the ranks pretty quickly, becoming the NFL's youngest college scouting director at the age of 27. At what point did you start to say, oh, I could I could maybe be a GM one day? Every step of the way, I just kind of did my job and always learned. You know, I always thought that I had the qualifications and the talent. I didn't think. I knew I had the qualifications and the talent to do it. So it was just a, a logical step in the process. Do you remember being nervous for those first few interviews? Of course. Oh, yeah. I'm, all, <laughs> I'm, I'm nervous for this. Now, of course, it was just something new. and But I had good people to prepare me to say, OK, this is what to expect. And these are the type of questions you'll ask. And so I had a lot of guidance with that. Actually, our owner said, hey, this is what you would look for. And their owner kind of how his personality is. So once I got into it, it was just similar, just talking football and giving my my ideas and how I build a team and what my goals would be for the organization. At what point did it start to feel like maybe these interviews weren't as serious as you would like them to be? So throughout my whole life, I just, whatever level I've had to achieve high, you know, I grew up in a black neighborhood and went to all, my parents made sure I went to private school. So my dad always said, you got to be twice as good. You know, that's just the landscape of race in America and expectations for black men versus, you know, white people. So I always knew that going in and at each step of the way that kind of happened where I went to the best private schools. I went to Princeton. I went to best grad school. I got internships and, you know, I kind of rose up the ranks at each step of the way. And then once I started getting the general manager interviews, like I deserved them. I always felt Yes, I'm Black, but my credentials were better than anyone's. My presentations that I brought into were better. But after a few, you know, they kind of started all adding up where I was getting a call on one day and then bring brought in for the interview the next day and then on the plane, get home and they'd announce whoever they were hiring. After each interview, Mark would ask what he could have done better. The answer was always the same. You did wonderful. We really liked you. You're going to be a GM one day, but we felt more comfortable with whoever they hired. And it was like a standard template that all these owners would say to me. After the first couple of times, you kind of, then after time five, it became like, wow. I mean, when someone says to you, I just felt more comfortable with the other candidate, what, how, how do you take that? It's code words. It's it's definitely coded wording that they use. Um, they think it's not blatant, but it actually is. And here it is. I laugh because, like I said, I grew up in a working class black neighborhood. I went to private schools my whole life. I went to Princeton. I've I'm more well uh, exposed to different types of people than anyone that you could imagine in the NFL. But yet I, you're not comfortable with me. And what, what was the lack of comfort? Tell me what that was. None of the teams ever even called for a reference check. One particular job that I did not get, and I knew I went into the interview, I interviewed about four hours. The person who ended up getting the job, who I knew very well, he was like, it was the damnedest thing. I sat down, we we chit-chatted for five minutes, and I got up and he started walking me around, introducing me as the new general manager. 
So that was kind of the final death blow of, wow, this is really how this goes on behind the scenes. Mark went on a few more interviews. He says he didn't really have a choice. But after 11 years with the Giants, he left. Mark is now a front office analyst for the NFL Network. As the 2010s drew to a close, the Rooney Rule suffered two blows that would make it even tougher for candidates of color. The death of Dan Rooney in April of 2017 and John Wooten's retirement from the Fritz Pollard Alliance, the group of coaches, scouts, and front office executives that advocates for diversity in the league. My father dying and John Wooten retiring. I mean, you know, you really had two leaders that that were, were like no others. That's Dan Rooney's son, Jim. He wrote about all of this in his new book, A Different Way to Win, Dan Rooney's Story. He and John Wooten were always on the phone, probably against league rules and certainly some HR rules. But, you know, they they just felt it was that important. So they were always on the phone with owners, with general managers, with, with when, whenever there was an opening they would spend time on them. You just, on the inside of the league, you took Dan Rooney's call, from what I'm told. I'm not an NFL owner, but, uh, you know, you took the call. Jeremy Duru again. I think outside the league, without question, when John Wooten retired, there is no way to fill John's shoes. But there were still others. Sias were still working. Uh, some others of us in academia were advocating, the media. But on the inside, I think with Dan Rooney no longer there, to lead the effort. I, I think there was a, a bit of a leadership vacuum and it, and it hurt. And then there were decisions made, not true to the spirit of this movement. And I have to put some of that on the league office. That's Cyrus Mary. Clearly in one instance, I'm bringing up the Oakland situation, the owner crossed the line. The Fritz Pollard Alliance called for the NFL to investigate whether the Oakland Raiders violated the Rooney rule when they hired John Gruden as head coach. Max, Is this worthy of an investigation? The answer is yes, it is. And I want to make John Gruden had been at ESPN for, I believe, a decade. Shalise Mansa Young. And effectively, Mark Davis had a deal in place with John Gruden to become the new coach of the Raiders, not only before he interviewed anybody else, but before he'd even fired the man who was still the head coach, before he fired Jack Del Rio from the job, he essentially had already hired John Gruden. He interviewed the white candidate in person, and he had his general manager interview the black candidates who weren't even considered by most standards as a truly viable candidate. So it was just like clearly just check the box. If the decision maker doesn't interview the minority candidate, how could that be a level playing field? So we needed the league to side with us, and they didn't. Jonathan Bean has only been with the league since last August, so he wasn't part of the decision. And he admits the Raiders are his favorite team. You have to interview at least one diverse candidate during the process, which is what they did. The challenge, though, is who spoke to these candidates. In the end, Jonathan says the league decided that the Raiders had followed the letter, if not the spirit of the rule. You know, you're talking about the the general manager. The general manager, with the exception of the owner, is the person that runs the club. If the general manager is saying, I had a legitimate interview with a diverse candidate, how are we going to say that that's not legitimate? 
because we did not clarify who needed to be involved in all aspects of the interview process. When the league didn't come down on that type of behavior. Jeremy Duru. I think it just gave a lot of clubs the sense that, you know, this maybe this rule has had its time or um, we're just not going to, we don't need to take it this seriously or this is a signal from the league that they're not quite as concerned about these things as much. Let's focus our energy on other on other things. And so I think it, it led to less of a commitment on the part of clubs to really be intentional and deliberate about their searches. As the carousel went round and round in late 2019 and early 2020, there were five open positions. Only one coach of color, Ron Rivera, would be hired. Then you're saying, hey, you know, how can we ensure that we, again, increase that access and opportunity The league is always looking at ways to improve the rule. After the controversy surrounding Gruden's hire in 2018, the NFL required teams to have the same person interview white candidates and candidates of color. And in May of 2020, more changes were made. The rule was expanded to include coordinator and front office positions. And for head coach positions, teams were required to interview two diverse candidates, not just one. What the research shows is that If you have at least one more diverse candidate in that slate, the possibilities of a diverse person being hired for a role go up dramatically. And it's not just a numbers game. Someone could say, of course, well, if you have five final candidates, well, it's a 40% chance instead of a 20% chance. But actually, the reason why that happens, it reduces the bias of the actual decision maker because they're not seeing that one individual as being the other. They're seeing them just as a part of the larger slate of great candidates that they're looking at. When Cyrus Mary first met with the NFL back in 2002, he proposed using draft picks to reward teams who worked toward diversity. That idea was quickly and resoundingly rejected. But last November, the owners approved a change to the Rooney Rule that makes draft picks part of the equation. It's sort of insulting. Shalise Mansa-Young. So Terry Fontenot was hired by the Atlanta Falcons to be their new GM. He came up through the ranks of the New Orleans Saints front office. The New Orleans Saints now are getting a third round pick this year and a third round pick next year as a reward for developing Terry Fontenot. Why do you need to be rewarded for developing black men? You need to be rewarded? You shouldn't be developing black front office executives or black coordinators because you might somewhere down the line get two third round draft picks. You should be doing it because it makes them better and it makes you better, not because you might get some trinket down the end of the line. Still, this year, Shalise was hoping things would be different. Particularly after 2020, right? And George Floyd and this new reckoning, and you have Roger Goodell in his basement actually saying on video, Black Lives Matter. You would have thought there would have been some change But instead, when the coaching carousel started up again, Shalise watched as the same names continued to go around and around. And then there's always these out-of-the-blue names that end up getting jobs. This year in particular, Nick Sirianni, who was hired by the Philadelphia Eagles, Dan Campbell, who was hired by the Detroit Lions, and Brandon Staley, who was hired by the Los Angeles Chargers. Nobody really had them on their radar, certainly not Sirianni. 
But all of these coaches, the ones moving from job to job and the ones getting hired out of the blue, they're all white. Meanwhile, Shalise says Black coaches... They have to be like a five-star recruit out of high school, and then they have to be an All-American in college, and then they have to enter the coaching ranks and and grovel at some low-level position for a couple of years, and then somebody decides, well, you can be a coordinator, and then you have to toil as a coordinator, and then maybe when you're 50, you'll get a chance. That's the path that Black head coaches have to take. That's Karen Gallagher, senior researcher for the Global Sport Institute. And she says what Shalise has observed, this long list of requirements Black men have to meet before they're given head coaching jobs, it's real. The research proves it. But your white head coaches, we have some who never played beyond high school and entered NFL coaching as a head coach. Like, had never coached in the NFL before. That pathway just isn't open for Black head coaches. And there's one Black head coach candidate whose name just keeps coming up. Eric Bieniemy, not a good conversation for him. Shut out again. And on- in the past two or three years, I know Bieniemy has interviewed for at least 11 positions. It might be as high as like 12, 13, 14 now. I don't get it. I don't. I really don't. You know, it, you know, it was leaked at, that... He didn't interview that well with the Atlanta Falcons this year. Well, why is it that he didn't interview well when the Falcons interviewed six or seven people and only one person got the job, but nobody said that the other five candidates didn't interview well? Every little thing you do is magnified when you're a a Black general manager candidate, when you're a Black head coach candidate. Mark Ross. You have 20 of the most stellar credentials. You have one that may be slightly off. It's not even off, but that gets magnified. Whereas if you're a white candidate, whatever the one positive you have, that gets magnified. And if you have negatives, they get ignored. And Mark says the more times a candidate is interviewed, even if those interviews were only intended to satisfy the Rooney rule, the more the rumor mill starts to buzz. And it doesn't even have to be legitimate concerns people have, but it's just something that is used as an excuse to not hire. I mean, I just, if it was me, I think at some point I would just walk away and say this isn't worth it. But again, like I said, Karen, you can't. I mean, I turned down one interview and I and I never heard the end of that, where it kind of got back around to me from a bunch of places like, yeah, they were they were mad at you for not taking like, well, really? Now, when you were still working with teams, were you did you feel comfortable speaking up and saying, hey, this isn't real? Not at all. I couldn't. There's no there's no way I could do that. You know, now I have more of a platform and I'm, I'm on the outside and I love what I'm doing now on the media side. And it's like ruffle some feathers. Now, I don't care. At the time, I couldn't. So Eric Bieniemy keeps interviewing for head coaching positions, and he tells reporters that he's happy to have a job in Kansas City. He says that's where his focus is. He says all the right things. What choice does he have? And Eric Bieniemy is far from alone. Yes, Eric Bieniemy should be a head coach, but he is not the only Black man right now who is worthy of being an NFL coach who is not. Pep Hamilton didn't even get a phone call. Pep Hamilton was the quarterback's coach for the L.A. Chargers last year. He coached Justin Herbert to one of the best seasons ever for a rookie quarterback. If you took Pep Hamilton's resume and took his name off it and put it on the desk of an NFL owner, of course they would want to talk to him. 
Of course they would want to talk to him. He has everything that they say that they're looking for, everything that this, the data shows us they're looking for. He's 46 years old. He has multiple years as an NFL quarterbacks coach. He was a former play caller as an offensive coordinator. What else do you want him to do? It's just constantly moving goalposts. The black potential GMs and the black potential head coaches essentially have to be unicorns. According to the data, before being hired into head coaching positions, coaches of color have more playing experience and more coaching experience than their white counterparts. But there's something else that the data shows us, and it might be even more important. While white head coaches go around and around on the coaching carousel, getting job after job, coaches of color rarely get second chances. That is the the most common scenario for a head coach of color, specifically black head coaches. Karen Gallagher again. The, the scenario for them is if they lose their head coaching position, there isn't a next opportunity waiting there for them. So it's like they're not on the carousel or something. They're, they're not. And in fact, some of them will go back to defensive coordinator positions, which is the most common pipeline for black head coaches. Some of them may go into college coaching and very few have broadcasting opportunities. Some have no opportunity at all. It is with great pleasure and it gives me great honor to introduce David Culley, head coach of the Houston Texans. The Houston Texans brought the 2021 coaching carousel to a close when they hired David Coley. Coley was one of two coaches of color to be hired this year. He's one of just three black head coaches in the league. There is no question about it. It's disappointing. The NFL's Jonathan Bean. Right? I mean, this hiring cycle was disappointing. And so we have to keep going at it. We know the great diverse talent that's out there. But... Also, we know that things aren't going to turn around in six months or a year. This is going to be a process, but we have to be committed to it and we have to hold ourselves accountable to that. But Jonathan Bean says if you're only counting the head coaches who were hired, you're not looking at the whole picture. If you look at the hires over this hiring cycle, we're at least positive 13 when it comes to diverse coaches at critical positions within the league. That's head coach, GM, coordinator, quarterback coach assistant GM, those kind of critical top positions within a club, that's progress. For many, including Shalise Mansa-Young, that progress is far too slow. I don't know what the threshold is. Is it 8 out of 32? Is it 16 out of 32? Is it that 70% of the head coaches are Black because 70% of the players are Black? I don't know. I just know that it should not be that every year there's five or six or seven or eight teams looking for a head coach. And we're supposed to feel happy if one of them is a black man because he has been deemed the unicorn for that year. And, you know, the data shows that he won't get a second chance. I don't understand what needs to change. What more these black coaches can do to be valued, to be seen as the best coaches, period. As much as it's probably not going to make me friends among NFL owners, they just need to stop with the bias. 
Back in 1965, long before he became the first chairman of the Fritz Pollard Alliance, and before he and Dan Rooney spent all those hours on the phone with NFL owners encouraging them to consider candidates of color, John Wooten traveled to Washington, D.C., alongside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., to watch as the Voting Rights Act was signed into law. Dr. King talked all the time about the moral compass that is in all of us to do what is right. And and this is what all of this is about, really. Eighteen years after it was enacted, Wooten still believes in the Rooney rule. But he says its success depends on the moral compass of the individuals who enact and enforce it. And he says this fight is about much more than just football. Because what football is going through right now, our country is going through that right now. And the question is, what are we going to do? So what are we going to do? We'll try to answer that question next week. This episode was produced by Karen Given. The Global Sport Matters podcast is a production of the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. Our manager of events and programs is Kendall Jones. Our marketing and communications manager is Crisal Valencia. Our marketing and communications assistants are Katie Cross, Julia O'Connell, and Natalie Skegan. To stay up to date on the latest from the Global Sport Matters team, be sure to sign up for our newsletter at globalsportmatters.com. And if you have a question or comment for us, Send us a tweet. We're at Global Sport MTRS. I'm Andrew Ramsiami. And until next time, continue to social distance, wear a mask, and wash your hands.